Shane Zafir is one of the authors of the very popular book, Street Data, a next-generation model for equity, pedagogy, and school transformation. One of our Leadership Circle members recommended to Jeff that we feature this inspirational conversation, and we are so glad we did. Street Data is different than so many educational texts and dives into the heart of how we envision and determine what success can look like for students. Any educational leader will learn from this conversation between Jeff and Shane. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, how are you? Uh, this is Jeff Rose. Welcome to Leader Chat. Teachers, leaders, thank you so much for everything you do. And today we bring to you an exciting conversation. This conversation actually came through a recommendation from one of our Leadership Circle members. As some people know, we have a Leadership Circle where our members can listen to this conversation live. They receive the video and then others listen to the podcast that's publicly available and comes out two weeks after this discussion. But we had one of our members um, actually a team of members on the West Coast superintendents and a couple of their assistant superintendents reach out and say, you have to read Street Data, and we would love for you to get in touch with the authors. So we were able to um, get in touch and engage one of the authors, and we're going to lean into that discussion today. So I'm going to try to go quickly into this. I'm going to introduce you here in a moment to Shane Safir. Shane has worked at every level of education in the system from the classroom to the boardroom for 25 years. In 2003, after teaching in San Francisco and Oakland and organizing in the community to launch a new school, Safir became the founding principal of June Jordan School for Equity, JJSE, an innovative national model identified by leading scholar Linda Darling-Hammond, who's been with us in the past, as having beaten the odds supporting the success of low-income students of color. Since 2008, Safir has provided equity-centered leadership coaching, strategic planning, and professional learning to support uh, for schools, districts, and organizations across the U.S., Canada, and beyond, she is the author of The Listening Leader, Creating the Conditions for Equitable School Transformation, and her most recent book, co-authored with Dr. Jamila Dugan, is entitled Street Data, a next-generation model for equity, pedagogy, and school transformation. And so, without further ado, please let me uh, welcome um, Shane to the screen. Shane, how are you? Now, you're we're not just on opposite ends of the coast, but you're um, you're in Canada. I sure am. Good morning, buenos dias, Jeff. It's nice to sit with you this morning. And yes, I'm joining you from Victoria, British Columbia, the base of Vancouver Island. Um, this is the traditional unceded territory of the Lekwungen people, where the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich people still thrive and call it home. And I'm deeply grateful to be living here this entire school year, living and learning and growing. So um, I read your bio, but what did I miss? I must have missed certain <laughs> things in the bio. I mean, you, you always do when you read a bio. So um, what was maybe, what would be important for you to, to mention about yourself that I just, I skipped over? Yeah, it's hard to capture a quarter century of work and almost half century of living in a paragraph, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I appreciate that invitation. I think um, what maybe doesn't show up in a standard bio for me is um, all that I continue to learn as a parent of two teenagers, um, a 13 and a 16 year old Kai and Maximo and their journey through the school system, 
um, without going into too much detail, you know, they've had a lot of experiences of being children at the margins. And um, it's forced me to really not just look at the educational system differently, but really look at my parenting. Jamila and I talk a lot about what does it mean to decolonize our parenting and to really apply some of the principles of street data and listening leadership in our homes. And so that's a big part of my journey. And I guess besides that, I would add that I come from um, Jewish and Irish immigrants, folks who came here in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I think their legacies, their stories, um, their traumas and resilience definitely inform a lot of the work I do. So I, I, I've been cramming for this conversation. That's what <laughs> that's what we called it. So number one, I told you I was I was told I have to I, I have to talk to you. Right. So I'm so thankful that you were able to have this conversation. And I know that we weren't able to schedule it with uh, Jamila at the same time, but um, I really, really did pour through the book. I've I've earmarked and I, I feel like I could do really well in a quiz. I feel like I I would do well. So um, there's certain there's so many things I liked about it. My overall take is that um, I appreciate your focus on um, rather than just aligning ourselves to the data that we receive that kind of describes what we sometimes think are problems with students and our teaching and learning to actually thinking about the needs of the people that we're serving and being deeply connected and in touch with those things. But when you wrote this, this is in the thick of the pandemic chaos, right? I mean, this is during COVID chaos. So I'm curious um, about some of your original intent and then maybe as you've come out of, as we've kind of been coming out of that, has your perspective shifted or changed in any particular way? Because we're living through some really interesting, turbulent times in education. Yeah, we sure are. I mean, it was definitely an interesting synergy in a way to be writing this book during the pandemic because I proposed it to Corwin pre-pandemic and then you know, we entered March of 2020 and I was uh, in full scale writing mode. I mean, I think the seeds of this book really were planted long before this era um, in, in my classrooms in San Francisco and Oakland in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And um, as you know, that was a different era in education before No Child Left Behind, before Race to the Top, before ESSA. Um, and it wasn't that data or big data or what I call satellite data didn't exist. It's just that it didn't have the same, what I might call outsized role that it plays in the field right now. And it was a time of really kind of radical imagination. I got to teach at a big conference of high school in San Francisco with, you know, a very diverse group of folks who were just trying to, um, redesign pedagogy and center students in ways that were quite exciting and imaginative. And I learned so much from those folks. And so by the time we got to the pandemic and I was writing this book, I think that I was looking for a way to articulate experiences I had early on as a teacher and then later as a principal, um, deeply held beliefs and you know ways of knowing and being epistemologies that I carried. And it just so happened that the pandemic kind of, you know, ripped the roots out of the <laughs> traditional architecture of schooling and, and set aside all our assumptions about what school had to mean. What I would say, you know, today looking back is, I think we entered a space of possibility 
in a space of dreaming during the pandemic. And there were a lot of, Jamila will often talk about, there were a lot of webinars and, you know, PD opportunities, like let's reimagine the pedagogy and teaching and learning. And then school buildings opened. And for the most part, we kind of boomeranged back to business as usual, right? The system returned to homeostasis in many, many places. And I would say, you know, that makes, that makes my heartache to look at it because we lost a lot of opportunity. But at the same time, I think the reason this book is catching so much energy and attention is because there is a hunger. There is a deep desire and longing to transcend some of the narrow constraints and limitations of the current system. And so that's exciting, right, at the same time. So I, I, don't, want, I don't mean to uh, squelch your excitement. So I just want to bring, I want to talk about this reality that I think we're facing. I, I think we'll probably agree on this, that um, I, I also felt this uh, sense of possibility that potentially um, the time for change was becoming pretty ripe during this, this chaos that we are living through. If, if ever we could make some changes, it would be now, right? That was, that was my thinking. Um, I've been disheartened a bit as I've seen us kind of fall back into a level of comfort, which in the meantime, we knew was often not best for students or communities. Um, and you even bring out in the book that billions of dollars, numerous revisions to federal laws and mandates um, have been in effect for the last 20 plus years, and yet we have flatlined, right? We've actually lost some ground as it relates to this, this uh, all-encompassing gap of students based upon their circumstance. So with that being the case, how is it that we can, what would you say to leaders? Because leaders, leaders are caught in the middle, right? They still have this dream and this hope, but they're almost, um, they're distracted they get hijacked by this political polarization, all of these things, the community demanding that we go back to where we once were so it was comfortable. What words of advice do you have from, for leaders, maybe based upon my anxiety as I describe it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can relate. I mean, there's so many layers to answering that question. I think, you know, for one thing, we need a new paradigm. And that's what I hope this book offers is a really different and expansive way of thinking about what is data, what is knowledge, that in truth is rooted in traditional and generational ways of being and knowing. I mean, all, all of this, it's, it's not new, right? The oral tradition, the value of deep listening, these are ways of being in indigenous communities and black communities and communities of color across the states and beyond. Um, and also many immigrant European communities as well. So I think we need a new paradigm, but we also need a movement. We need leaders who are courageous and who are willing to stand for and speak for other ways of being and leading and then who can connect with each other as you're doing through your organization and build power and build shared vision for what's possible, right? So, so yes, I I fully agree. Um, there's I want to make sure our listeners, I'll, I'm going to read a part of your book back to you, which I know may sometimes feel uncomfortable. But uh, no, I'm, I'm, this is important because early <laughs> in the book, you define, bless you, you define street data. Right, and you say, so street data is a qualitative and experiential data that emerges at eye level 
and on lower frequencies when we train our brains to discern it. Street data is asset-based, building on the tenets of culturally responsive education by helping educators look for what's right in our students and schools and communities instead of seeking out what's wrong. Street data embodies both an ethos and a change in mythology that will transform how we analyze, diagnose, and assess everything from student learning to district improvement to policy. It offers us a new way to think about, gather, and make meaning of the data. So you are referring, uh, as, as the book continues, in a new paradigm on how we identify the needs and support our students and communities, maybe not align the traditional way on how we measure. Now, that's a huge change, right? So as, right, and, 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 and leaders are sometimes caught in this. Listen, I, this is like the serenity prayer. There are certain things I can change and certain things I can't. That being the case, based upon what you're, um, what you're suggesting, what should a leader be thinking about in terms of a priority, specific to what they can change, maybe instead of to what they can't? Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, street data is about a whole scale, whole system, whole person transformation. And you might recall in chapter four, I actually sort of editorialize on the choice of the word transformation versus change. Because I believe that change, the language of change has emerged from this kind of incrementalist big data model that we're going to seek a 10% gain here, a 5% decrease here. It's this, it's this language of sort of tinkering at the edges, right? And it's how we get so many initiatives that Linda Darlingham and your previous guest, I remember had this beautiful metaphor of barnacles on the ship. We have this yes. endless array of interventions and programs and curricula. Um, and what we're trying to do here is, is shift away from tinkering and incrementalism toward transformation, right? And that to me is a much better match with the goal of equity and the language in Canada of truth and reconciliation. If we're going to correct, rectify historical harm, systemic racism, these are generational legacies, right? These are decades and centuries long um, historical traumas that need to be addressed. We can't be shooting for 5% gains, right? And we can't only be looking at data that's 30,000 feet above the child. We have to be down close to the learner and we have to understand um, the child's experience, their story, their voice, right? That's the heart of street data. But to your question about what can leaders do, if I heard you right, I think we need to continue to question and redefine success. I'm not even sure if the language of success really fits anymore. That feels like it's very much an outgrowth of a Western colonial data paradigm, but we could set that aside for a future podcast. We need to reorient kind of data and then by extension assessment, right? So I'm a huge believer in authentic assessment, performance-based assessment. I write about that in chapter six. I think this is something that leaders at different levels of the system do have influence over, so to think about and, and sort of co-design with the community, um, what is our portrait of a graduate, right? Mm -hmm. What is a culturally congruent and sustaining and holistic vision of what it means to leave our system or even our school? And once we have that and we can think about that in more expansive ways, we then are sort of forced to think about new kinds of evidence. Right? A test score is actually not 
um, going to be the kind of evidence that tells you a story of whether a child is ready to leave a system or a school. And so that's where we get into this terrain of performance-based assessment. And from performance-based assessment, once we ask students to stand and present and defend their learning in really dynamic ways that are rooted in student voice, then we actually have to go to the classroom and we have to think about what's the pedagogy that's a match for that kind of assessment, right? So there's this like way in which it's all connected, but I think that leaders can, um, they can engage the community around designing that graduate profile. They can experiment with more performance-based modes of assessment. And then ultimately as leaders, we can shape the adult learning that creates a symmetry to the kind of student learning that we want. So um, in, in chapter, in section six uh, of the book, I, I can't appreciate how you, you talked about, you know, how do we move away from this outlier syndrome, right? These, these pockets of excellence that we see sometimes even within our school, right? Sometimes within any school, there's a particular classroom that just year after year stands out because of the, you know, the miraculous work of a, of a particular teacher. Sometimes that happens within a district, right? There's this one particular school that just sees things differently and gets different results based upon a different system and culture within the walls of the school. You talk about how we move away from that to uh, right system redesign and refocus. And I appreciate the concept of a portrait of a graduate because it actually focuses us as people on what do we want for our kids? That's the, what do we want them to, what, what do, can we envision for them? And then how do we align the system to that as opposed to, well, let's align ourselves to a 5% gain. So as, you, as we talk about this system opportunity for a restructure, um, what do we say to the leader who's probably um, excited and leaning into that or wants to, and then maybe still suffering from the fact is that they're, they're measured based upon not getting the 5% gain, or you know, the, the, the system continues to sometimes beat down this creativity. And so your book really inspires. How do we keep our leaders inspired is the question. Yeah, I wish I had a simple answer to that. I do think the sort of network approach that you all are promoting, the professional learning community and, you know, leader to leader peer growth and development is crucial. Um, I think this idea of shifting from a deficit mindset to an abundance mindset is really big in the book. And, you know, it I sure don't is. think I'd get much argument in saying that our kind of dominant data system, what I call satellite data, is largely rooted in a deficit-based language and mindset. And so the first invitation in the book is, what if we were to just become really aware of that? This is part of the brilliance of Jamila's Traps and Tropes, right? These 10 kind of equity um, patterns that we can see in the system, equity in quotes. What if we were to become acutely aware of the ways in which we are embodying a deficit lens and, and language, and then shift ourselves increasingly toward an abundance mindset? Right? So one in which not only do we assume that every child is brilliant, as Dr. Asa Hilliard says, every child is a genius. The first yeah. thing you have to do is um, love them. And that we then designed our assessments and our curriculum in order to uplift and amplify their genius, their cultural wealth, the things they have to say, the things they care about in the world. That, that would be a really, really different kind of paradigm. But the other thing I'll say is a little bit more technical, which is that 
you know, in writing chapter four and then eight, which is like an echo of, of four, um, I spent a lot of time building the equity transformation cycle. And that is really an offering to make all of these ideas move from why to how, right? So lots of people are sold on the concept of street data, but then it's like, well, how do I do that? How do I bring this to right. life? How do I start to shift away from the dominant frameworks? And that's what that cycle is about. And it's meant to work at every level of the system, from the classroom to the school level, to the district, even to the kind of county or kind of state level. Um, you can move through that same cycle. And Jamila and I are already seeing evidence of folks grabbing it, using it, and not just changing practices, but deeply changing who they are and how they show up in the work. So that's feeling like a place of hope and possibility to me it, right now. It is. It, and so can you go back a little bit? You said uh, in, and I, I forget the chapter, but when you mentioned traps and tropes, can can yeah. you just expand on that a little bit for our listener who hasn't who hasn't read it? So, ex explain what you meant by that term. I can try. I wish Dr. J was here. You'll have to have her on too. So she, um, that chapter, if she were here, she'd probably say came out of a rant. So a day where we were talking, and she was saying, you know, I just I feel like there's all these well-intentioned folks trying to move toward equity in their work. And yet over and over, I see these, these tendencies, these ways that they get trapped um, that actually reproduce inequity or that keep them um, really rooted in the status quo. And from that came these 10 different sort of patterns, if you will, from um, doing equity. So doing equity is like having a checklist, right? We're gonna do the implicit bias training, check, we've, we've arrived at equity <laughs> or, um, you know, another really important one is tokenizing equity. So the idea that we can, you know, that a system can like appoint um, a BIPOC leader as the equity person and okay, they're gonna, that person's gonna handle all the equity stuff, right? So it becomes really siloed and the burden often is on leaders of color to try to like transform the system on their own. Um, boomerang equity, I think is one of the most resonant and common ones, especially at the beginning of a school year where you have all these dreams in the spring and then you come back, you boomerang back to past approaches. So it's really quite a brilliant framework um, that she created and that I think people can use to assess what are the traps and tropes we're falling into and how do we start to climb out of them using the equity transformation cycle and the street data model. There's, there's a section in the book uh, around listing, valuing teacher voice. Right. And, okay. and there's, there's, it's, it's a wonderful section that I think is just really important for us, especially at a sensitive time, like right now, uh, you know, we know there's a mass exodus from teaching right now, as well as leadership as well. And so, um, there's this incredible list I'd love to read, but I, I need to keep you on time. But as we kind of think about listening to teacher voices, and then uh, leaders trying to do that. What advice do you have for leaders on how they find a balance on, you know, they want to provide teachers with, you know, levels of autonomy. At the same time, we want to make sure that we have a level of fidelity to our system and our culture and so forth. And that fine line of loose and tight is sometimes really difficult. What advice do you have for leaders as we do a better job, hopefully listening to teacher voice, providing them with the autonomy and keeping us all on track and just creating some of those guardrails that keep us part of a team. Do you have any input mm -hmm. there? 
Well, first of all, just a shout out to Carrie Wilson, my colleague who wrote Chapter 7. Um, she ran a really incredible organization that was called Mills Teacher Scholars and now is Lead by Learning. So they are absolutely experts in this area of public learning and valuing teacher voice and folks should check them out. Um, you know, I think the first thing I would say is we have to trust teachers more. We have to stop micromanaging, scripting, you know, kind of offering pre-baked curriculum to teachers and cultivate their genius and cultivate their expertise and come back to the craft of teaching, which is what made me want to be a teacher, right, in the late 1990s. And as we do that, I think more and more we can not just affirm, but really study and amplify strong pedagogy, right? So rather than focusing on where are the gaps, where are the gaps, who's struggling, you know, how do I put them on par, coach them out or whatever, we need to be, what, what you pay attention to grows. That's an Adrienne Marie Brown. Yes. We need to pay attention, right, to the places of elegant practice in our schools and districts and create a video library, get teachers into each other's classrooms, you know, use sub time if we have subs, I know that's a huge pain point right now, but really get people out of their um, myopia and to be able to see and witness great practice and talk about it. And then the third thing I would say is as leaders, we have a moral imperative to model what I call a pedagogy of voice. So what drives me crazy, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, is when we have all this language about instructional change, instructional change and pedagogy, and then we stick teachers in a room and we just lecture at them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's, as you said earlier, it's the sit and get, like, let me either, here's the data slides telling you how you're failing students, or, you know, here's the new literacy program. Let me tell you exactly how to do it. This is not good teaching. We know this, right? And we can't, we have to, we have to mirror what we want to happen in classrooms in our adult learning environments. I'm a huge, huge believer of that. And then the last thing I'll say is really, as leaders, we need to um, increasingly become listening leaders and warm demanders. Listening leaders, my first book was all about the sort of technology and epistemology of listening as a way of leading. And then warm demander is the closing chapter of street data, right, which is about how do we call folks in and up to the work of equity. And I think both of those notions offer a way to lead that's really much more contemporary and <clears throat> much more culturally congruent than um, the kind of top-down models that a lot of us inherited. Oh, Shane, I, I could talk to you for a long, long time. This is a dilemma, but, but I know um, I can't. I have, to, I have to get you back to your, your, your next meeting, keep you on schedule. So number one, know that I've really, really appreciated this, but here's my last question. And I asked this of, of all of our guests. So rather than talking at, we, let, we, believe, we say circles are better than rows. So let's pretend you and I are at a table with uh, other leaders sitting with us. Right, and what would be your, your just kind of final words in an elevator kind of speech of advice or things to think about? And by the way, I'll also leave you. There, I can see why street data is is actually doing well and very popular. It's it's a phenomenal par you know paradigm you're you're describing. But what just what would be your parting advice that you would give to them? Two words. Yes. Slow down. Slow down. <laughs> As we slow down, we can learn to listen to ourselves and understand, investigate, situate who we are as leaders and all of our multiple identities so that that becomes part of the power of our leadership. 
And then with that quietness and stillness, we can learn to attune to the street data that's all around us. Every day, every interaction is an opportunity to learn and to gather systematic information on equity and school transformation. But if we're moving, you know, 100 miles a minute and we're checking off tasks, we're actually not able to learn and gather as we go. So really slowing down, I think in some ways, is the crux of what needs to happen right now. Thank you so much, Shane. I really appreciate you. And I, it's it's likely I, I may also reach out to Jamila as well, just so you know, because I want to keep talking about this book a little bit more, um, but I yes. want to keep you on track as well. So you're just very generous with your time. And I'm we're so appreciative that we had this opportunity to kind of pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, I hope the ideas resonate and always welcome hearing from your listeners. And just this is a model that we're building in real time in the field. So it's just fantastic to get to hear how people are using the ideas. Well, this this won't be the last time that you hear from us then. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, take care, Shane. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I was... I was so thankful we were able to have this conversation with Shane and we had to squeeze it in. Um, and we're going to continue to keep this conversation about street data alive in one way, uh, shape or another. So um, ladies, gentlemen, leaders, educators, um, thank you so much for all you do. Be well.